Welcome to the Stone Choir Podcast. I am Corey J. Mahler. And I'm Woe. On today's episode of Stone Choir, we're going to be discussing deism, the belief that what's called commonly the watchmaker theory, that there is a God, there's a creator, but once he set things in motion, he basically just stepped back and let things run. Uh, The reason we're discussing that today is that I think that Christianity has been overtaken by a soft form of deism. Maybe some of you even listening have some elements of this deistic view in your own hearts, even while you confess the true God. You know, it's deism is a, is a non-Trinitarian heresy and an anti-divinity heresy in some ways. But the aspect of it that is compatible with modern Christianity, which is to say not Christianity at all, is the belief that God set things in motion and he just kind of vanished. So the first half of the episode is going to be talking about that. And then the second half, we're going to be illustrating some examples of how Scripture talks about sin specifically having temporal consequences and how we fundamentally don't believe that today, even as we say that we do. And just as an alert to any Roman Catholic listeners, I know there are a few of you at least, when we're talking in that, we're going to be using completely different terminology than you use in your own confessions. So please don't mistake us for being in agreement. We're actually in complete disagreement. This is one of the reasons why we split from Rome. It was one of the principal reasons for the rest of Reformation. So we're going to be using some of the same terms you use that mean completely different things. So we're not. this is going to be a polemic episode, but just know up front when we're saying some of those words, we are not talking about what you believe. A specific warning to parents before we get into this, towards the end we're going to be giving an example that is necessarily graphic in a sexual nature. We're going to be using one or two words that you may not want to explain to your children today, so I'd caution you to maybe screen this episode before you listen with family, as we know many of you are now, and we're thankful for that. Whether or not your kids listen to this episode now or later, the reason that we're going to you know, create some trouble for you as a parent is specifically that the example is such a crucial example of how Christianity in sort of the, the modern form of Jesus died for us and so everything's okay is fundamentally destructive to how we are living our lives. So we're going to make the case for that. And that specific example is one that whether or not your kids listen with you today, your kids need to know before they go and get married. They need to understand how certain sins should affect mate selection because they will affect the rest of their lives. They've affected your lives. They've affected everyone's lives in varying ways. So begin, I'm going to give a brief recap of Scripture as it relates to God acting in time. And I'm going to cover just a few highlights of God doing stuff in time. The reason for highlighting these is that I think that as Christians today, even faithful Christians, we kind of look at God's action in creation is basically limited to what God said he did in Scripture, and then we have this hiatus, and then at some point he's going to come back. And so that's why I say we're kind of functionally deists. We'll make that case. But it's not that we're saying God never did anything after six days of creation, but we kind of believe that Jesus ascended into heaven, and then God's just kind of hands off, and later on God will come back and do more stuff. But in the meantime, we're kind of on our own, and that's false. That's plainly contradictory to Scripture, and again, it affects how we confess our faith and how we live our lives. So in the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And God said, let there be light. And by the end of the sixth day of creation, God had finished all of the things that he intended to make. And he saw that it was very good. God walked with Adam face to face as friends. Even as creature and creator, there was no adversarial nature there as there is today. Adam sinned. When he sinned, God cursed him, expelled him from the garden, declared that you will die. And God blessed him and said, through your lineage, I will solve this problem. I will undo the damage that you have done to all of creation in the fall. For about 1,500 years, mankind became more and more wicked from the days of the garden until in the days of Noah, that generation was so evil that God regretted he ever ever made man to begin with. And only for the sake of keeping the promise he had made to Adam did he not kill all of mankind. So he preserved eight souls along with all the animals that needed to hitch a ride on the ark through the flood. Everything else in creation on this planet was destroyed. 500 years after that, God came to Abram and made Abram a new promise. 2,000 years after God promised Adam that there would be something in the future through his lineage that would undo this damage, God specifically promised Abram that it would be through his descendants that that promise would be fulfilled. And for the next 2,000 years, God worked directly in the lives of Abraham's ancestors to preserve those promises, those prophecies, and to preserve that lineage, to preserve the bloodline passed from Adam through Noah to Abraham and his sons in fulfillment of God's promise. 2,000 years after the promise to Abraham, 4,000 years after the promise to Adam, Jesus was born the Christ, the Messiah. He came in the flesh. He lived for 30 years as a normal man. 30th year of his life, he began his ministry. And for three years, he publicly taught. He performed miracles. He fulfilled the law of God. He fulfilled the perfect life that Adam failed to lead. And he also fulfilled through his ministry and his miracles, every single promise, every single prophecy of the Messiah that was made in the Old Testament. On the cross, when Jesus died, and he said it was finished, 4,000 years after God said that creation was finished, Jesus said that his perfect redemption, perfect redeeming work of redemption, was completed in his death on the cross. He rose three days later from the dead. For 40 days, he appeared and ministered to hundreds of people. He was witnessed widely as being alive after been, having been provably, visibly dead, murdered, and dead in the ground for three days. After 40 days, he ascended into heaven. And that's kind of where a lot of the direct action of God disappears. Now, interestingly, the timing of this episode is that in the church calendar, in the Western calendar, ascension was last week. And this coming Sunday is the Sunday of the first Sunday of Pentecost. So in that 10 days between Christ's ascension and the Sunday, 50 days after Easter, when those tongues of fire come upon the disciples and the gathered people on the Sunday of Pentecost, that is a very visible miracle of God performing in the world. And subsequent to that, I think almost all the miracles that were performed were performed specifically by the apostles and by, by believers in fulfillment, again, of those prophecies that have been made in the Old Testament. 
once the apostles had died, once they had spread knowledge of God, once they had revealed what had been taught to them during their three years of seminary, listening at Christ's feet every day, and the direct revelations that they were receiving from God, we don't have any warrant to believe that there's been subsequent direct revelation from God. Since the last apostle has died, most Christians consider that direct revelation from God of new things has ended. And unfortunately, I think that has caused us to believe that God vanished. You know, God stopped directly acting, and although he made subsequent promises in the New Testament as well as the Old to us, we don't believe them in quite the same fashion that it was believed leading up to that point. And so we're going to begin by talking about the advent of deism subsequent to Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. Fast forward about another 1,500 years in our timeline, the Renaissance began and it led into the Enlightenment. And so today, 2,000 years after Christ's ascension, we haven't really seen much activity from God, not in the same way that it was seen in the past. And we ignore a lot of the things that God said about how he would be active in the world. And I think that that has caused tremendous problems for us in our lives as Christians, because by forgetting all the promises that God made about being specifically active in our lives, we forget his nature as as our creator and as our, our redeemer. The God who promised all of those good things and, and sacrificed himself on the cross also promised the small stuff. Give us this day our daily bread. That is a prayer for God to remember his promise to us. And why I think many of us say grace before meals and try to be cognizant of the fact that food theoretically comes from God, I don't think we necessarily have the sort of immediate understanding that what you are eating is direct providence from the Almighty. That's something that in, in past generations we did have because we didn't have grocery stores. You had food, and you know, in many cases it was food you grew yourselves. If you had a crop failure, you could potentially stay, face starvation. Today we're insulated from crop failures. It doesn't matter how bad the weather is, how bad the crops are. You can always go to the store and find food. So post-enlightenment, post-industrial revolution, the world we live in today has pushed God out of the way and let us live in a world where we can believe that, yeah, God's not really around. He's not doing much. We should obey him, but it's all just kind of theoretical that God's not doing stuff today. So we're going to begin specifically by talking about the advent of deism and the influence that it has had on the Christian faith. So as is becoming a theme with this podcast, we are going to mention the Enlightenment, because really, deism entered Western civilization, Western society, and in time, the Christian church in the West, during the Enlightenment. And there are a number of individuals we could discuss when it comes to Enlightenment deism, but one of the main individuals would, of course, be David Hume. Now, before getting to Hume specifically, what deism is in this historical context is essentially a rejection of special revelation, not general revelation, but special revelation, a rejection of miracles, and a rejection of mystery. Because in essence, what deism wants to do is be able to explain the world purely via observation, empirical observation, and so subject the world to human reason, human logic. And so there was a removal, literally in some cases, of the miracles and the mystery from Christianity, 
from the Bible. For instance, Jefferson is one of the best examples of this. He literally took a razor and glue and cut out parts of the Bible and moved things around because he did not like the miracles. He did not like the parts that could not be reduced to human reason. And so there goes the mysteries as well, which would be the sacraments. Because, of course, you're not going to explain communion or baptism without mystery, at least if you're being true to Scripture. To expand on what exactly I mean for those who aren't familiar with the terms, by special revelation versus general revelation, essentially it's the distinction between the natural world being general revelation and Scripture being special revelation. And that is Scripture insofar as the things revealed in Scripture are not revealed in the general revelation in creation. And so, for instance, Deus will affirm that there is a God. One, one would hope that is obvious by the name Deus coming from Latin Deus God. But they will affirm that there is a higher being. There is a creator God. There is a God who is in control. They deny that he acts in time in his creation. It's the, the watchmaker idea that God wound up the universe after creating the universe, obviously, and then let it go. And he stands back and he watches it. And so he is transcendent and not imminent. That is imminent with an A, not an I. But special revelation is what you have in Scripture. Special revelation is those things that are not revealed in the creation itself. And so, for instance, the core of the Christian faith not revealed in the general revelation. Yes, you can discern there is a God. Yes, you can discern some things about God. But you cannot discern what God's disposition toward you is and how he wants you to interact with him. Yes, you can reasonably come to the conclusion that you should worship God, and that is correct. Insofar as pagans came to that conclusion, they were right. But without scripture... You cannot know about Christ. You cannot know about original sin, except insofar as you look around and see that things are not as they should be. But you don't know what to do with that. And so you need that special revelation to know that Christ died for you, and that belief in Christ is how you have a right relationship with God. That is special revelation. You cannot get that from simply looking at nature. And just to throw in a verse here, just so that we're establishing that we're not just making this stuff up and we're not trying to sell some sort of weird pagan version of Christianity. The very beginning of Romans, Romans 1, God writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So when we talk about natural revelation, general revelation, revealing God, we're not saying you don't need Jesus and you don't need Scripture. We're pointing to Scripture to say what God said about himself. God says that the heavens testify to his glory. And we mentioned on numerous episodes, 
Go read Job 38 and following. Read it devotionally every week. That is God delivering an extended soliloquy about how creation itself testifies to his glory, to every man, not only to Christians, but to every man who has ever lived. So Romans 1, the very beginning of one of the most important books in all of Scripture, says exactly what we're saying here. And we have a lot of critics who just flat out lie about everything we say. We are not making this stuff up. It's not a good idea that we had. God literally says this. So when we are battling deism, we're battling in our own church for precisely this reason. There are men who believe that natural revelation doesn't say anything about God. Now they're flipping it. They're saying that scripture is the only way to know anything and, and nature tells you nothing. God says both. God says that scripture reveals himself and that nature reveals himself in different ways and for different purposes. But to neglect one for the sake of the other is evil. As Christians, we don't get to do that. And it's also just ridiculous when they try to argue that Scripture alone reveals God's glory, because usually when God in Scripture appeals to his own glory, he appeals to creation. So Scripture itself is directing us to creation to see the glory of God. And of course, you paraphrase there the beginning of Psalm 19. I'll read the first six verses because they're highly relevant here. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And of course, that is speaking about creation. It's speaking about what God has done, what you can see when you look out the window. And so again, general revelation, creation, special revelation, scripture, both are true. Both reveal truths about God, and Christians can refer to both. But then to move on to David Hume, as mentioned, he is one of the ones who created the modern conception, or really the the modern framework of thought that turns into modern deism. Because in his essay, one of his more famous essays of miracles in one of his books, he basically argues that miracles are impossible. The problem is, if you actually look at the essay and assess the logic used in it, the entire thing is begging the question in the technical sense. When someone says begging the question in everyday speech, most likely he is wrong. Because begging the question is a technical term. It is a term of art. If something brings up a question, it is raising the question. If something begs the question, what it is doing is in the question, in the inquiry itself, you are assuming the conclusion. And that is what Hume does. Because the basic outline of Hume's argument is that a miracle is something, this is how he defines miracles, a miracle is something that transgresses the natural law. It is something that is outside of a natural law that goes against it. And so the most common example that's going to be given is a man coming back from the dead. Because of course the goal of denying miracles is to deny the resurrection, both Christ's resurrection and ultimately our resurrection. 
And so what he argues is, miracles cannot exist because natural laws are established over time due to the empirical observation of many men. This is the argument that an empirical truth, if you have contending arguments, the one that is true is the one that has the greater weight of evidence behind it. Now, there are a number of problems with this. Some of you will undoubtedly be able to see them. For instance, if you have a long-established error, how do you overturn that with accurate observations? Because every accurate observation is going to be, by Hume's own rule, thrown out because it doesn't accord with this supposedly established natural law. And so, as you can see, he's begging the question. He's saying, a miracle can't happen because a miracle is outside the natural law and only things that are inside the natural law can happen. And so it's just complete gibberish. But That's this is literally the, base... the definition of a miracle. Exactly. That's the problem. He's, he throws out the idea of a miracle by saying a miracle can't happen because a miracle is contrary to natural law. Natural law here being the laws of nature, not capital N, capital L, natural law flowing from God. But that's the core of this, and this is bled over into, first, the academy, because of the sciences, particularly the hard sciences that then infected the, the liberal arts. And then from there, because of course, theology is a liberal art. Theology used to be called the queen of the liberal arts in proper academia in centuries past. From there, it bled over into the church. And so you have Christians who basically affirm this sort of thought pattern without really thinking about what it is they're affirming. And so you, you have a denial of God's active involvement in the world. You have this conception of God as being, as was mentioned earlier, transcendent and not imminent, which is to say, above it all, sitting back, watching, he's, he's off in heaven somewhere. This, this is an error that some make when they contend that Christ is at the right hand of God. Not that Christ being at the right hand of God is an error, but the conception of what the right hand of God is can be an error. God is not a body. God is spirit. God is not contained in some heaven that is a physical location. The right hand of God is a position of power and authority. And so Christ isn't contained according to divinity or humanity, in some physical location somewhere. He is omnipresent because, of course, the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. Therefore, he has the fullness of the attributes of deity, one, of course, being omnipresence. Sort of a, a tangent, but it's important here. Because if you deny that God is imminent by saying that he is only transcendent, then you are denying his involvement in the creation, and really you're at least verging on denying the very nature of God, because you're denying omnipresence. And so what we need to do is have more of the mindset that our ancestors, our forebears in the faith would have had, where they looked at the natural world with wonder, because they looked at it as God being actively involved. God is the one who causes the sun to rise and the sun to set. God is the one who causes the change of the seasons. God is the one who causes every seed to germinate in your field or not. Everything we have comes from God. He is involved in everything from the grandest scale 
the movement of galaxies in the universe, the interaction of the galaxies, this grand, awesome scale, all the way down to the smallest interactions of whether it's individual atoms or particles inside of one. God controls all of that. He is involved. He upholds everything by his power. Without God's active, imminent involvement, nothing happens. And that includes miracles. Now, Hume's definition of what a miracle is isn't entirely wrong. Because when we speak of a miracle, what we really mean is that God involved himself in a particular way that is so out of the ordinary that it is utterly undeniable. So God is involved, as I said, in everything. So the cell divisions in your body right now, God controls those. Those happen because he wills it. But we don't call that a miracle. It is a miracle in the broader sense of the term. But we don't call it a miracle because it is in perfect accord with the way God made things to operate. What we would call a miracle is a man coming back from the dead. Because that is not in accord with how the fallen world works. God has to intervene in a special sort of way to cause a man to come back from the dead. And so that's what we mean really when we say miracle. And that's what these individuals, born of the Enlightenment thought, deny. They rip them literally out of the Bible in some cases and say you can't possibly have a miracle because God isn't actually involved in creation. He is merely sitting back and watching the machine that he spun up and then let loose. And I think at some point, what has really happened is that while they were trying to deny miracles outright, you know, special things like resurrection of the dead, as you laid out, they ultimately are fundamentally denying that God is doing the things that God says that he does in, in Scripture. In Jeremiah 10, it's written, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heaven, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from its storehouses. And wind from the storehouses is a phrase that's repeated several times throughout Scripture. Now today, thanks to modern science, we know that sunlight heats the Earth's crust, causes differences in temperature, which cause differences in pressure in the atmosphere, and so we get wind. We get winds, we get cyclones, we get all manner, you know, everything from the smallest breeze to the most powerful tornado is all caused more or less by the same things. And none of it's supernatural. On paper, you can model it, and the models work. You can have a model of how a tornado or a hurricane or a breeze works that doesn't involve supernatural. There's no variable for God in those models, and yet they're very predictive. The problem that we have today as functional deists is that because post-enlightenment, we have these new understandings of the facts on the ground. Oh, well, okay, that's how wind works. That's neat. And, you know, maybe you're really into it and you become a meteorologist. That's fine. But if you then go on to deny Jeremiah 10 and the other passages that says that God brings forth the wind from his storehouses, you can't be Christian. And see, that's that's the reason that this is a subject that's worth tackling, is that if you're denying these trivial parts of Scripture, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, there's no such thing. That's the point. If you know how wind works, 
and you decide, well, I know how that works with the at, at the atomic level, so it can't have anything to do with God. When God says, I did that, the disconnect is that the fact that we have now introspected through reason how things work doesn't tell us the ultimate cause of it working. And God himself says that. He's doing all of it. One of the points that, that I've made elsewhere is that I think there's something very important to be discerned from Revelation as John is being given his revelation in in heaven, in his vision. When he first comes to the throne of God and the terrifying beasts are there, they say two things. The very first thing that they say to him is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So right there they're confessing the Trinity with the triple holy. And the next thing that they say to him as he stands before the throne, listen to this. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now the reason I think that's so important is that the very first two things that are said in heaven before the throne of God have nothing to do with Christ's sacrifice on the cross. I do not say that to diminish that in the slightest. That is the third thing. But it's important, I think, that in order, it says, Then worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the 24 gathered around the throne do confess Christ as the Redeemer. That's absolutely a fundamental part of Christianity. There are two other things that are said before the throne of God first. The first is the Trinity, and the second is declaring the glory of God in creation. And so again, as we introspect the glory of God in creation, as Christians, that should give us a greater appreciation for the glory of God. It shouldn't make us appreciate science, which again is just, it's a word for knowledge. That's literally what it means. Scantia is knowledge. It's not special. It's not a, it's not a different religion. It is a knowledge can only be of a true thing. So when we have scientific knowledge, which is redundant, of things, what we're saying is, okay, we understand better how it's working. And to, to Corey's point about Hume and his definition of what we can accept, that's the problem that science faces today. The established science, like made up things like anthropocentric global warming, are complete nonsense. But because 95 doctors out of 100 say, this is how it works, no one is allowed to even get funding to say, well, that's complete nonsense. So these false beliefs have effects on our lives in the left-hand kingdom and in the right. As we get further and further away from believing that God is active in creation, it's easier to forget the other things. You know, one of our recurring themes is that Satan doesn't care which lie you buy. You know, as, as Christians and most of you listening are Protestants, you're not going to fall for the, the trick that you can save yourself, that you can do something to earn your salvation. We got that one nailed. We figured it out 500 years ago and we've stuck to our guns. Satan didn't rest on his laurels. He's found other avenues of attack that are not frontal assaults on the second article of the creed. He's going after the other stuff that we don't have good arguments against. Part of the reason that Stone Choir exists. We're talking about this stuff that no one's really talked much about because Satan wasn't attacking it before. Now that Satan is attacking it, it should become one of the chief concerns of the church, capital C. 
every Christian denomination is either struggling with some of these questions, you know, things like trannyism and, and other matters related to the flesh and how we're created, or they're adopting wholesale the religion of the world and they're ceasing to be Christian, even as they still have the creeds and confessions, whatever your confession is in your denomination. When you start whittling away at what God has done in his creation, that is an over-denial of the Creator. You can't get around that. If you say, no, God, the wind didn't come from you, the wind came from solar radiation, God will judge you for that as a false confession that you were denying him. And if you deny God, he will deny you on the last day. I think it may be helpful for the listeners to go over, I guess, really just a couple practical matters when it comes to deism in our own daily lives in the modern world. And it should be mentioned first, the first point, the Freemasons are deists. That is one of the reasons, of a number of very strong reasons, that Christians cannot be Masons. And I know that some will think, well, my grandfather was a Christian and a Mason, and maybe that was so. But if he was a Christian, it was because he was a bad Mason. And if he was a good Mason, he was not a Christian. Because again, Freemasonry is deist. It denies that God is active in his creation, that he is involved, and it denies the mysteries. It is exactly what we've been describing thus far. It is an organized form of deism. It is a deistic competing religion to Christianity. And so again, no, you cannot be a Mason and a Christian. These are incompatible. And historically, Lutheran churches, among others, have barred membership to Freemasons. And certain other groups have actually persecuted the Masons historically, which is, of course, what a Christian ruler would do, because they're an anti-Christian cult. But then another point that I want to make is something that many have undoubtedly read at some point, and that is C.S. Lewis's Trilemma. I'm not going to recommend C.S. Lewis generally as a theologian. He is a, a decent apologist, but apologist and theologian usually not found together in one man. Usually a man who is a good theologian is a bad apologist, and a good apologist is usually not a very good theologian. Lewis should have let others do the theology, but his trilemma is actually quite sound. It is quite good. I'm not going to say that it is purely logically sound, as in you could turn it into a modal logic problem and arrive at the conclusion. That's not the point. It is compelling, which is why I am calling it sound. And the trilemma, of course, is when you deal with what Christ taught and what Christ claimed, you are left with three options for what Christ is. And that is lunatic, liar, or Lord. You can say that he was a lunatic, that he was a crazy man who lived in the desert and told people some good stuff and claimed some crazy things like he was God. Or you can claim he was a liar, that he was just a swindler, that he was one of a long line, actually, in Palestine of those claiming to be a messiah. Or you can conclude that he is your lord. Because if you take his claims seriously, that's the only option. 
if the things that Christ did and the things that Christ claimed are both true, then he is your Lord and Savior. Deists don't want to deal with this. That's why you have men like Jefferson who want to say, I really like what Christ taught, and then cut out all this other stuff. Why is what Christ taught compelling absent his other claims? And why can we just jettison those claims? They don't have an answer for this from the deist perspective. It's the same sort of argument as those who would say, we agree with this confession insofar as we like what it says, which for Lutherans, of course, I'm speaking of Quatinus' subscription to the Book of Concord, which is an argument that the Book of Concord, insofar as it is correct, correct, of course, being here from the position, the viewpoint of the one making the argument, insofar as it is correct, or in agreement with our interpretation of Scripture, that's completely meaningless. To say that you subscribe to something insofar as it is correct, in your opinion, means nothing. Insofar as the menu at my local Thai restaurant is correct, yeah, of course I subscribe to that. Because insofar as it's correct, it's true. That's the case for all documents. It's a totally meaningless claim. And that's the problem that we have here with deism. Their claims about Christ make him irrelevant, meaningless, and really highlight the bankruptcy of deism itself. I think one of the worst consequences of the Industrial Revolution was that it separated us from our food. It separated us from our food sources, from how God provides things to us. And there's so much of how God wanted the world to be ordered that hinges on providence, that hinges on him acting directly to us. Now, I'm not making a case for everyone returning to doing everything himself. That's I, I would be dead if that were the case. I'm, I can't grow anything. It's not fundamentally a rejection of specialization of labor, but I think it's important for us to acknowledge that in the industrial age, we have been separated from the immediacy of God's delivery of these things to us. As I said earlier, I've mentioned before, a grocery store is a miracle. You can go in there any time of the year, any season, and basically get food pretty much from around the world that's, if you have a decent grocery store, it's going to be in good shape. It's going to be fresh. You know, some of the stuff is genetically engineered now, so it's been messed with, so it looks good. But even with that, the fact that there's always food when you're hungry, if you can afford it, is itself a miracle. And I think because we have gotten away from the lifestyle that involved hand-to-mouth in the sense that you are growing the food or the animal, the plants, whatever it is, whatever sort of gardening or farming you're doing on any scale, when that's no longer a part of our lives, we forget that someone's doing that on our behalf. And that specialization means that the farmer that witnesses birth and death that witnesses the sacrifice of the animals as they're dying to be our food. The farmer sees that, and it's kept out of sight. And frankly, one of the other horrors of the industrial age is industrial farming, which is absolutely evil and should be destroyed and made illegal everywhere. That is vile what is done to creatures today. It makes me sick. If you can support local farmers, just as an aside, please do that. 
because a local farmer is always going to be taking better care of their animals. I have a friend a few years ago who grew some pigs. They had one bad day in their life, and they didn't even know it. They were outside. They were eating like crazy. He cleared several acres with with the pigs eating everything up, and then they made incredibly good bacon and ham. And they never even knew it was coming. They had a wonderful life as pigs, and then we enjoyed them for a year as dinner. That is the way God has ordered things since Noah got off the ark. God said, as I gave you the plants, I now give you all the animals too. Everything is yours to eat. Now that we have grocery stores, now that we have all these other sources of things, we forget that God is still doing that for us. It's really the polar opposite of manna from heaven, where they were wandering in the desert and they had no food, and then it just it rained you know, this, this bread for them, and that was their sustenance. The immediacy of that is it's the same sort of immediacy we, we get from a grocery store, but without any of the notion that it's a miracle that God's doing it. I want to read again Matthew 6, just this passage where Jesus is specifically preaching against us believing the watchmaker theory in any regard. He talks about the smallest things in this passage as an illustration that if you can trust God for the small things, you can certainly trust him for the big ones. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is a passage I've, I've read at least once before in a previous episode that the reason I keep returning to is, one, it countermands deism flatly. It's saying that your food, your clothing, all of it comes to God. Not only is some sort of miraculous intervention outside of the laws of nature, but it's how God provides things. God gives you a job. God gives you a house. God gives you food. All the things that God gives you are his blessings. And they're every much as bit a blessing as the miraculous manna from heaven. God is simply fulfilling this promise to all his creatures in a different way in our lives. And that's a blessing, too. I'm not complaining about grocery stores. I'm saying that the fact that we have this blessing of such great abundance should be a reason for even greater thanksgiving and not certainly a reason for us to forget that it's God that's producing all of it. He sends the rain. He sends the winds. He grows the crops. He gives us farmers and grocery stores and truck drivers and all the things that are so mundane that without which we would starve. So all of that is God acting in our lives. And the fact that there's scientific reasoning and understanding that let us think, oh, well, I understand how the economy works. I understand how the weather works. I understand how crop rotation and germination works. If you forget God, you've missed the entire point of everything. 
you'd be better off starving to death and remembering God than being fed and forgetting him. God is giving us both in nature and in scripture. And all we have to do is receive it with thanksgiving. I think a final point that we should make in the U.S. context, which of course is our primary context. Yes, we have listeners from all over the world, in fact, but in the U.S. context, many operate under the assumption that the U.S. doesn't have an established religion, an official religion, and that we cannot have that. Of course, that's a different argument for another time, perhaps. No, the Constitution doesn't actually bar an established religion. It bars Congress from doing it. But the U.S. does have an official religion, and it is deism. It is called ceremonial deism. Now, some, of course, will try to argue that it's not actually a religion, but it is, in fact, a religion. It was first mentioned in Lynch v. Donnelly in a dissenting opinion, but I will, I'll read just a, a quick paragraph from that dissenting opinion. I would suggest that such practices as the designation of In God We Trust as our national motto, or the references to God contained in the Pledge of Allegiance to the Flag, can best be understood in Dean Rostow's apt phrase as a form of a ceremonial deism, protected from Establishment Clause scrutiny chiefly because they have lost through rote repetition any significant religious content. And so essentially, our state religion is an anti-religion. It is a rejection of Christianity, because of course that is ultimately what deism is, a rejection of Christianity. And this comes from the Jewish law school professor Eugene Rostow. I think at the time he was actually the dean of the law school. But his argument is that the U.S. has a ceremonial deism as its religion, which makes appeals to God or a higher authority that aren't actually truly religious in that they aren't really an appeal to God, but an appeal to a sort of tradition or belief in a higher principle, which of course is deism. And that is an important point about deism. It's this appeal to a higher power, which we of course see in Alcoholics Anonymous, or an appeal to providence. Any number of different terms are used for this. If you see someone who uses only those terms, you should be deeply suspicious. That person is most likely a deist, not a Christian. Now there is a bit of complexity or potential confusion here, because Christians can also use those terms. It is perfectly permissible for a Christian to refer to God as uppercase P providence, or as the higher power. However, a Christian will necessarily also refer explicitly to Christ as Lord and Savior at some point. A Christian will be able to give that confession of the faith. That's the dividing line. The deist will never give that confession of Christ. The Christian will give the confession of Christ even if he also uses these terms that overlap with terms used by deists. And so it is important, it is incumbent on Christians to pay close attention, particularly to those who are speaking in the public sphere, when they use these terms, and perhaps even more importantly, which terms they neglect to use. And so... 
we the living in this generation separated 2,000 years from Christ's ascension have inherited this post-enlightenment version of Christianity that most of us hold lazily. You know, it's, it's simultaneously a true confession and a false confession. Because if you stop believing that God is doing certain things, even while you believe he's God, we're not sitting here pronouncing judgment on who has true faith and who doesn't. God alone knows that. But we can say with absolute certainty that you are endangering your salvation by endangering your faith, by adopting a false confession that denies God's things that he reveals in Scripture that he does. And one of the reasons that we wanted to do this episode, and one of the reasons that we began by specifically talking about the idea of a watchmaker God who's basically checked out now, is that as we've gotten into a gospel reductionistic version of Christianity within the church, where when we are professing our faith, we don't want to talk about God punishing sins anymore. We don't want to, we even want to say the word sin. We talk about brokenness. You know, we talk about things being problematic, which is a, a Marxist term. We don't say sin. We don't say evil. That's one of the reasons that Corey and I say sin and evil a lot. It's not being obsessive or trying to be controversial. It's that that's what these things are. That's what God calls them. So when God calls something evil and you call it problematic, there's a disconnect. And if you claim to be Christian and you won't say things the way God said them, you're going to get into trouble even while you're confessing all the other parts of the faith that are true. And one of the chief problems that we have today is that Christians don't believe that God punishes sin in this life. We believe that you sin and sin and sin, or you try not to sin and maybe you do a decent job. Obviously, no matter what, you're going to sin some. That's, that's part of the Christian confession. We cannot live a perfect life. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, lived the only perfect human life. We will only be perfected in the resurrection, covered in his blood. Until that day, no matter how hard we try, we will fail. Nevertheless, we are to try to obey God in, in confession that he is our God, he is our creator. We are to confess as the, as the angels before the throne, holy, 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 you are God Almighty, I will do what you say. That should be simple and obvious to everyone. Instead, what we hear from so many of our teachers is, oh, don't worry about that sin stuff. Jesus has it covered. Just try to do better, and you're forgiven. And by no means would Corey or I diminish forgiveness in the slightest. The entire Christian faith is predicated upon the creator of the universe 6,000 years ago coming 2,000 years ago to repair the damage that Adam did and that we perpetuate through our sinful lives and our sinful being. The fact that God paid the eternal price for our sins on the cross does not obviate the fact that there are temporal punishments for those sins. Not always, not automatic. It's not a one-to-one -one correlation. Nevertheless, it is absolutely the case that God will punish us in this life for the things that we do. I want to read now the Confession, the general confession that's given publicly in, in virtually all Lutheran churches for hundreds of years. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. 
and I pray you of your boundless mercy, and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Now, every week, Lutherans are saying, justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. And we focus a lot on the eternal punishment, that's hell. That's taken care of as a Christian with this confession, with a true confession of God. You are off the hook for the eternal punishment. We never think about the temporal punishment. As I said at the beginning, if any of you happen to be familiar with Roman Catholic doctrine, we're not remotely talking about the same thing. Temporal and eternal are two different spheres. One is bounded in eternity. The other is bounded in time. Temporal is not a synonym for temporary. And the reason I mention Roman Catholicism in particular is that this is how indulgences came about. They realized that if they could attribute some additional penance to pay in time for sins, they could raise money. It was one of the reasons politically that the Reformation was fought was that you know, the St. Peter's Basilica, all the beautiful things in Italy, those were being built with indulgence money extracted largely from Germans. It was, it was a racial national extortion racket in the name of Rome, in the name of the Pope, to get money from one nation and give it to others. Now, the indulgences were everywhere, but they're pushed particularly hard in Germany. And so when Roman Catholics talk about temporal punishments, they specifically mean doing something to get off the hook in this life. That's not what we mean. That's not what Lutherans are talking about when we talk about temporal punishment. Lutherans are talking about what Nathan brought to David in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan said, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before all the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. So that's a temporal punishment. Now that is a specific, you might say miraculous temporal punishment. But the fact remains, Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin, meaning the eternal punishment. Nevertheless, David's son was killed by God. That was the temporal consequence. And notably, in, in light of some of our previous episodes, the temporal consequence for David's sin was visited upon his son, who had, you know, by our standards, had done nothing, but he was the product of an evil union, and God cursed it with death. So when we talk about temporal consequences for sin, as we've talked about in the past, we're dedicating this episode specifically to the point, God will sometimes use punishment in this life, in your life, as you are living and breathing, punishment for a sin that you have committed by way of chastisement and reproach, and to bring you to repentance. In the case of David and Nathan, he had already confessed his sin, he was confronted by Nathan, and 
the yet still the punishment was visited upon him, even as God forgave the eternal price for that sin. So it is absolutely Christian doctrine that something that you do in this life will have punishment from God in this life. That's how this ties in with deism. If you believe in the deistic God, you know, he, Jesus sent into heaven and he's going to show up on the last day. But in between, God's not really going to do anything. Oh, you know, maybe he feeds us. But the idea that God would cause in your life specific punishment for specific sin is a big deal. And it's something that has a direct impact on our lives, on every man's life. And so when we're talking about obeying God or not obeying God, and we're talking about Christian doctrine focusing, we would argue, too much on forgiveness. I know that sounds terrible, but we're trying to make the point that if all of your focus is on forgiveness, that's the eternal forgiveness, the specific point we're making here is that God does not forgive the temporal punishments for your sins. You will still face some consequence. Again, not a one-to-one relationship. Not every sin has a direct and immediate punishment. God doesn't promise that. He does, however, promise that there will be temporal punishments for sins. And so when they are visited, Christians are to point to them and say, this is God's punishment for this sin. Sometimes as a demonstration that the thing itself is sin, when you see the punishment for the thing, that is a demonstration of the evil of it. It's a proof that it is sin. And when antinomians want to focus on, well, Jesus died for you. God forgave all that. Don't worry about it. That's fundamentally destructive to the faith because it allows you to keep on sinning and sinning and knowing that Jesus paid for it all on the cross. So you can just kind of do whatever you want and try not to sin so much. Well, when someone says you're actually destroying your body and your mind and your soul all at the same time by your evil, that's part of what Christians need to be able to tell each other. You should be able to tell your friend who is sinning, you're abusing drugs, look what it's doing to your body, look what it's doing to your family. You're being punished for your evil. Stop being evil, and those punishments, some of them will go away. The consequences for the punishments may linger, but they're a consequence of sin in time. That's a part of the Christian faith, and it's one that we have to remember, because as the world gets worse and worse, I don't think we can just cling more and more to the cross and think about forgiveness in eternity while ignoring the destruction that we're inflicting on creation. Destroying creation is sin. Destroying your body is sin. We can't do that. When you continue to sin unrepentantly, you're jeopardizing your salvation. So this is a matter of profound urgency and importance. It's the whole reason that we're, we're setting this up in terms of deism and temporal consequences, because rejection of a God who's active in the world fundamentally results in rejection of a God who will ever punish you for anything you do. Christians think that they can just live a consequence-free life by doing anything, and then as soon as they confess, okay, it's over, you can't, you, you know, not touching, can't get mad, you're forgiven in eternity, you may still have to face consequences in this life. And so this is where we'll get into the section about which we warned you at the beginning of the podcast, where we'll be covering some topics that you may not want your children to hear just yet. We're not going to cover this in particular depth because it gets very technical very quickly. Some of you may have noticed, as an aside here, 
that we didn't touch really on theistic evolution in this episode. We didn't do that because that is also a subject that gets very complex very quickly, both philosophically and biologically. We will probably eventually do a future episode on that. It will be a deep dive episode. It will be involved and complicated. You may want to listen to it a few times, but that is not this episode today. However, we are going to touch on some biology here, because this ties into the temporal consequences of certain kinds of sin, particularly in this case, sexual sins. And so first off, it is necessary to mention just some basics about human reproduction for those who perhaps skipped health class, biology, what have you. Humans are oogamous. Essentially means that we have two different kinds of gametes that come together to produce offspring. That's all that means. And it's anisogamous, which is that they are different from one another, which is just to say that the sperm cell and the egg cell are different. Because, of course, the sperm cell is motile and the ovum is not. Now, the reason I mention this is because the fact that the sperm cell is motile is what is important here. Because for a woman, when she has sex with a man, if he ejaculates inside her, those cells, the DNA contained in them, do not stay put. Because again, sperm are motile. They can move, and they do so. And so the ultimate consequence of this is that the woman winds up having some of the DNA from the man with whom she had sex in various places in her body, including in her brain and her cerebral spinal fluid. They've conducted autopsies on deceased, obviously, women and found male DNA in the, the female brain. Now, this happens a number of different ways. One is having sex. If the man ejaculates inside the woman, well, you now have male DNA inside the woman, and it makes its way to various other places inside her body. The other, of course, would be pregnancy. Because if the woman becomes pregnant with a son, well, the son has male DNA, obviously, and there is an exchange of cells between the child and the mother. Some of those do cross the placental barrier. And so you will wind up with immune cells and others from the mother in the child and from the child in the mother. Now, there are some benefits to this. There have been cases where those cells that cross the barrier from the child to the mother have actually repaired damage to the mother's body and potentially saved her life. It's very obvious why God designed the system the way he did. There are some stresses on the female body during pregnancy. The pregnancy itself takes care of some of those stresses and potentially of other damage that existed before the pregnancy in order to help bring the pregnancy to term. One example that I read many years ago was a woman who had a defective heart valve. She got pregnant and the fetal cells actually fixed the heart valve, which obviously vastly increases the odds of the pregnancy coming to term, because of course there will be stresses on the heart throughout the pregnancy and particularly during the birth. And so this mother survived, whereas she probably would not otherwise have survived because 
of that microchimerism, which is what we're talking about here. Microchimerism is when you have a population of cells, you actually have multiple populations of cells if you're talking about the distinct genetic lineages, but you have a grouping of cells where the overwhelming majority of them are from one line, in this case, the mother. They are primarily her cells. But you have a significant, although small, percentage of those cells that are from another line, usually defined as less than 1%. That may not sound like a lot to most people because it's you know less than 1%. 1% is small. But if 1% of your cells are foreign, that's huge. And no, I'm not talking about the ones in your gut. Those don't count. These are cells that are actually in your body, potentially doing things. Because some of these are going to be stem cells. And stem cells are going to produce other cells. Some of them are going to be hematopoietic, which is to say producing the components that make blood. Some of them are going to do other things. As I mentioned, the ones that, for instance, could repair a heart valve, do something like that. And so for a woman, you have this microchimerism as a result of having sex with a man or being pregnant. And that can include if she has a spontaneous abortion, which is to say a miscarriage, or an actual abortion, because that also still leaves behind those cells. Now, the point of this and how it ties into what we're discussing with regard to sin and the temporal consequences of sin is that if a woman has sex with many different men, she is going to have DNA, not necessarily from every single man with whom she had sex, but from a number of them. The consequences of this are going to be biological and psychological. We'll start with the biology. Biologically, you are going to have expression of certain proteins, various other things. I said we won't delve too deeply into it, so we won't do that. But you're going to have various consequences for the woman herself, and additionally, for any children she has from that point forward, from her having sex with a number of different men. You are going to actually change the ultimate genetic makeup of the child due to the mother's past actions. Which means for a man, of course, if your wife is a virgin and she has sex with you and only you, your children are going to be maximally related to you. In fact, each additional child you have with that same woman is going to be more related to you because you are literally injecting your DNA into her every time you have sex with her, not just when she gets pregnant. And so she becomes not necessarily more like you over time, but more genetically yours. That is how God designed it. God was not speaking idly or even truly figuratively when he said that man and wife become one flesh. It is more literal than most people would happen to think, and certainly more literal than those living a profligate libertine lifestyle in our modern world would like to think. And so biologically, your children are going to be less related to you as the man if your wife has had sex with a number of other men. And that just continues to get worse as she has more and more partners. Of course, there are other biological consequences. We know STIs and things like that. 
but these are the ones that are related to the discussion we're having here of the temporal consequences of sin, because everyone knows the obvious ones. We're talking about the less obvious ones that Christian fathers should be teaching to their sons and their daughters, because women need to know this is a thing that is going to happen to your body. You have no control over it. It is a permanent change. And so there are very real, very permanent consequences of being promiscuous. And then to speak on the psychological consequences, there is evidence in the literature, and really anyone who knows women who have made very poor life choices can confirm this. Certainly that's anecdote, but if you get enough anecdotes together, the plural actually is data. The psychological consequences for a woman of having many sexual partners start to look a lot like schizophrenia. Because there's psychological damage caused to a woman by engaging in this behavior. There is also probably some biological basis to it, because as mentioned previously, a lot of this DNA, or at least a, a good portion, ends up in the cerebral spinal fluid and ultimately in the woman's brain. We don't yet know exactly what is happening there because some of this research is relatively recent. There's been centuries of speculation on these matters, but we now have it very well confirmed. This is established. We know this happens. But some of the, the earlier, some of the earliest research, I guess, in some cases, is only probably a decade, a decade and a half old. So some of this is still in an infancy stage. But we know positively, absolutely, this is something that is happening. When a woman has sex with a man, she becomes, to some small degree, that man. He makes her his own. And so this is part of the reason that Scripture so vehemently condemns promiscuity and sexual sin, because sexual sin is indeed different in kind from other sins. Now, for men, it doesn't really have these consequences because there's nothing from the female body entering you during sex. That's not how God designed it. There's a reason God describes women as a field and men are the ones sowing the seed. The field doesn't really change the farmer. The farmer changes the field. That is how God designed it. That is how God wants it to work. Because the wife becomes one flesh with her husband, she becomes his. And so as Christians, we have to address this because this is something that our culture does not want to accept, does not want to teach. Because if you teach this, if you speak on these actual consequences, then women are going to be hesitant to be promiscuous. Of course, there are, there are other psychological consequences too. We know that there's essentially, not quite exponential, but somewhere between exponential and linear decline in the success of marriages as you increase the number of sexual partners of the wife, not the husband, but the wife, because the number of sexual partners a woman has is directly related to her ability to pair bond. And so a woman who has had many sexual partners will not be able to pair bond. And if she cannot pair bond, the marriage is not going to succeed. Are there exceptions? Some few. But you're playing the odds, and the odds are not in your favor. And so that right there is why so many Christians and others do not want to recognize this reality, 
because this is a temporal consequence of sin, and it is a permanent consequence of sin, permanent in the sense that in this life it cannot be fixed, it cannot be changed. These women are permanently damaged because of their past actions, and there is nothing we can do to change that. They are going to have less of an ability to pair bond, their children are going to be less related to their supposed fathers. This is simply the reality, the biological reality, of how God made women. And so we have to deal with that. If we just obeyed God, if we listened to what he says in Scripture, if we were faithful to what he commands, none of this would be a problem. This would be great. This is a good thing. This helps build families. This helps build marriages. This creates a stable society. But when we live in a society that is in open rebellion against the things that God says are good, against the things that God commands us to do, this is damning. This destroys people. And we want to be able to say, speaking as the, the general, generic sort of Christian, they want to be able to say, well, if you just believe in Jesus, all your problems will go away. It's a, it's a sort of therapeutic gospel, and it's false. All your problems will not go away. That is not what God promises. Your eternal problems will go away because you don't go to hell. That's certainly important. That is the most important thing. But the temporal consequences are real and they remain. You are not going to be cured of the STIs you've acquired through a libertine lifestyle. You are not going to have all the foreign DNA removed from your body if you're a woman or, incidentally, a homosexual male if you become a Christian. These things remain. These consequences remain. Yes, the eternal punishment for the actions that led to the temporal consequences, those eternal consequences are removed. But the temporal ones are not. And we do a great disservice to the younger generations, particularly parents and grandparents, do a great disservice to their children and grandchildren when they do not tell them these things. Because lying to them about them is one thing. Yes, that's sin certainly sinful, and that's a problem. You are derelict in your duty. But failing to teach them these things is also sinful. Because you are to train up a child in the way he should go. Because that promise of God that when he is old, he will not depart from it, doesn't apply if you don't do the train up a child in the way he should go part. The basic takeaway from this is that there are very real biological and psychological consequences of sex, particularly for women, and the consequences are temporally permanent. And so Christians need to recognize this and teach future generations these truths so that they can at least have the information necessary, maybe to make better decisions than the last handful of generations with regard to these matters. Because things are certainly now not trending upward. Because we continue to lie to the younger generations about the very real consequences of these lifestyles that are supposedly consequence-free. I'm sure that there are a lot of people listening right now who are you know, shaking your head some disbelief. It sounds like a completely insane theory. We're going to put a number of links in the show notes. You can just Google microchimerism, as in chimera. It's, it's literally what we're talking about. We're talking about small-scale chimeric changes. It sounds insane. It sounds fanciful. It sounds like sci-fi. 
it sounds certainly sexist because there's two men saying women will be screwed up if you sleep around and men are not affected to the same degree. Everything about what Corey has just said is blasphemy against the spirit of this age. That's part of why we're talking about it. I would guess that most of you have probably never heard about this before. Or maybe if you've heard about it, you haven't thought about the consequences that it has for yourself, for your spouse, for your children. Think about what Corey's just said in terms of the two different ways to approach God's order. You know, we talk a lot on Stone Choir about God ordered things in such a way. So God says, do this, and then we can either obey him or we can disobey him. And it can go either way. You can you can do whatever you want. God rarely intervenes and prevents someone from disobeying him. That happens sometimes. It's, it's part of the point of this episode. God does intervene. But most of the time, if you want to go off and sin, it's going to happen. And then you're going to suffer the consequences. But the point of this part of the episode is that an orderly marriage where there's a union of one man and one woman in matrimony, the one flesh union where they're both virgins coming in. Think about the consequences of microchimerism in that. You know, Corey described it, but I just want to reiterate to emphasize it's a fork in the road. On one hand, if you obey God, you the husband with your virgin wife, every time you lie down together, she becomes more yours. You become more one. It's not just a temporal one until you're done. She becomes more you, more yours, every single time, your entire life. By the end of your life, she was far more yours than when you took her hand in marriage. That's a blessing from God. That's absolutely a blessing. And when you're not using contraception, more often than not, God is going to bless your physical union with children, with child after child. And as Corey described, what happens when there's a baby in the mother's womb? The placental barrier is not an absolute barrier against the sharing of DNA. And just as in the case with the spermatozoa, I want to make explicit, we're not saying that the sperm somehow gets into the cerebrospinal fluid. However, the DNA does. Not in every case, but the more times that a woman has a man inside her, the more chances there are for that foreign DNA to become a part of her body. And because of the circulatory system, it just floats around. There's no way of knowing or predicting where it's going to settle. Now, they've found in most of the organs in the body at various times, they have discovered male DNA inside women. And it's the DNA. It's not, it's not just cells. It's subparts of cells. It's the DNA, which then propagate for decades there was one case that I read about where a, a 94-year-old woman had a substantial amount of male DNA in whatever part of her body that they were introspecting. Now, obviously, if she had had children, that would have been decades and decades prior. So it's not just DNA floated around and then eventually got disposed of. It becomes a part of the woman's body, and her own body perpetuates that foreign DNA as its own. She becomes less herself and more the man with whom she has had sex. And so when you're properly ordering these things, that man is your husband. Every time you have sex, there's more of him in you remaining. 
Every time you have a child, that child becomes a part of you. You know, that's not just a metaphor. Mothers talk about their children being a part of them. We now know scientifically, you know, it's the scientific part is certainly less important than the metaphysical spiritual part of a child being of the mother, but it's also physically real. The more children that she has, the more of their DNA is in her. And the the children's DNA propagates as well. The firstborn will propagate his or her DNA to subsequent offspring so that the children will be even more closely related. And this is a blessing. Like, this is a beautiful thing. As Corey said, this is how God designed all of this to work. That is absolutely a beautiful miracle for a family to be so closely united that they're all fundamentally of the Father by virtue of that union. That's incredible. And on the flip side, you have the girl who whores, the girl who chases after man after man and does the same things except in a disordered fashion. The more times that happens, the more disjoint her own insides become, the more separate people she has in tiny pieces in her. And as Corey mentioned, I want to say this explicitly, the more times that a girl has had sex with different men, the greater the likelihood and the greater degree that any offspring you have with her your, with her, will not be your own. Not to the same degree as if she were a virgin. Yes, they'll mostly come from your DNA, but some of the DNA in your children of a girl who has been whoring will be the other men. They will leave their mark on her and it will be in your children. And we see examples sometimes where that may actually have been the case. You know, when you see a twin, twins where one is black and the other is white from the same biological parents, and everyone's like, oh, it's a miracle. Race isn't real. Well, <laughs> race is real. I would bet a large amount of folding money that that woman in that particular example had had sex with an African-American and his DNA was hanging out enough to change her the skin color of one of the children. These have real consequences. As Corey said, they have psychological consequences too, particularly because some of this does literally get into the brain. And we're not just talking about DNA floating around in the, in the fluid. It literally gets into these cells, which then replicate. And so the brain of a woman in some small part is replaced by the brain of whichever man has been inside her. If it's your wife, that's a blessing. If it's random men, that's absolutely a curse. It's horrifying. And so part of the reason that we broke our general rule with this episode of trying to avoid subjects that you know you wouldn't be able to listen to with your kids is that this is so important for you to share with your kids in whatever manner is suitable. They don't need to listen to this. They need to hear from you. Don't ever have sex with anyone who is not your spouse, ever. One man, one woman, forever. Any deviation from that makes things exponentially worse. And to the point of the temporal consequences, it's permanent. There's no undo for this. There's forgiveness, but there's no undo. It's, it's fundamentally the same as a man or a woman deciding that they're transsexual and that they need to mutilate their body to be the other sex. So men will chop off their genitals, women will chop off their breasts. If, on the rare occasions when those people repent and return to Christ, their body parts don't grow back, once you mutilate your body, once you do this physical harm that is an obvious punishment for the sin you're committing, there's no undo. 
God will fix you in the resurrection to what degree we don't know. We don't know what our perfect resurrected bodies are going to be like, except that they'll be ours. But we do know that until you die, you're going to be the way you are. Whatever you damage stays that way. That is a big deal. And the reason that we want to talk about this is that don't do the crime and you won't face the punishment. See, when we talk about temporal consequences, you know, in the case of, of David and Bathsheba and Uriah and Nathan, when Nathan came to David and said to him what God had proclaimed, that his child would die, there wasn't a direct connection between his action and the child dying. The child died as a punishment against David. However, in these other cases, it's much more obvious what the connection is. If you're a man who thinks that you're a woman and you chop off your penis, what's the punishment for that? It worked. That's the punishment. It worked. When we sin against our own bodies, it works. God doesn't need to have some other separate punishment to just be delivered from the sky. Not discounting at all that that will happen. We, we know for a fact it happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. But the immediate effect is what is described at the end of Romans 1. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's explicitly a temporal punishment. And it wasn't fireballs from the sky. It was STDs. It was corruption of the flesh as a direct consequence of the flesh being used for corrupt purposes. So when we're talking today about temporal consequences in opposition to a deistic god, this is why. Satan wants us to believe. Like, if you want to believe in God, the creator, fine, that's fine. But he doesn't do anything. He's not really watching. You know, maybe there's a judgment day someday, but you can live your life however you want, and there'll be no consequences. And oh, Jesus died for everything, and you're saved, and that's great. Don't worry about it. The reality is very different. The God of Scripture says, when you sin against him, you may well face consequences. He doesn't promise Again, there will be a one-to-one -one relationship, but he promises that there is a due penalty for those sins. And if you receive it, you can't do anything but confess. And so one of the things that's happened recently in Lutheranism in the last few years, there was a blow-up not long ago related to the claim online that men prefer debt-free virgins without tattoos. Now, this is a true claim. This is a moral claim. It is what some would call a judgmental claim. And that's that's the root of this. That's the root of the antinomian spirit within so much of Christianity today. When a man says, I would prefer to marry a girl who is debt-free, she's a virgin, and she doesn't have tattoos, the immediate response from the antinomian is shrieking in rage and terror. How dare you judge someone for their past actions? She confessed, she repented, God forgives her, you must do the same. And that's a complete sleight of hand because that's not at all what's being talked about. If you have a girl who is $200,000 in debt, who has slept with 30 men, and who's covered in tattoos, she's going to be a worse wife. Absolutely, period, she's going to be a worse wife. Christians should be able to say that because it's plainly obvious. 
If she's 200 grand in debt or any amount of debt, what is that going to do to your family finances? Well, now you're a debt slave for the bad decisions of her father before you even met her. If she's a whore, you now are going to have children with a woman who's not going to be able to properly bond with you, and your kids won't be related to you, not to the same degree as if she were actually yours. And tattoos are self-loathing. When a girl is covered in tattoos, she's saying, I hate myself. Usually they go hand in hand because she's so messed up from the other bad choices that she has left herself in such a state that even when she turns to God, pray that every single one of them would, would repent of those sins, would return to the flock, and would stop doing those things. The point of this is that the temporal consequences remain. She can be forgiven by God for all those things. She's still $200,000 in debt. She still has a body riddled with other men's DNA. She still has a body that's been defaced in opposition to how God made her flesh. And so when you as a man are looking at two prospective mates, you must choose the one who's going to be a better choice for you. That's a matter of wisdom. Now, part of the problem that we have today is that so many people are screwed up. So many people have sinned so grievously that it's almost impossible to find a girl that doesn't have a body count. That's consequential. And there's a small way in which the people who say, we have to just forgive her and move on, are not entirely wrong. And that is this one narrow point. As a generation where virtually every girl has done these things, the only way to perpetuate the human race is for some of them to get married and to have kids. And maybe you have a broken generation or two, but then if they're faithful, you can put things back together. But if you as a man have a choice between one type of girl and the other, you only have one choice. You should never choose the girl who has done this sort of harm to herself, because it's not a question of you holding her past sins against her. And that's a crucial point here. It's not saying Jesus forgave her, but I'm not going to. Jesus forgives her in eternity. You can tell that Jesus hasn't lifted the penalty for her temporal sins because she's still stuck with them. She's still riddled with another man's DNA and covered in tattoos and $200,000 in debt. If Jesus had forgiven those in the sense that they mean that you care about, they would all vanish. She would go back to being a virgin. She would go back to being, you know, a 16-year-old girl in her, under her father's roof before all those bad choices were made. So when Christians try to set soteriology of Jesus' relationship to us and forgiving our sins against what we have to live with in this life, it's a false dichotomy, and it's one that ultimately will lead to destruction. Because as Corey says, if, if, you, if you forgive all those sins, if you fall in love with her madly, and you want to marry the, the girl who has all those problems, you're going to live with the consequences of that. She will have more mental problems. She absolutely will. She will not love you as much as a girl who never did those things, because she biologically can't. I think it's the key takeaway from that one aspect of it. A girl who has had sex with multiple men literally cannot love her husband as much as one who hasn't. It's a fact. We'll have links in the show notes to demonstrate this. It sounds unforgiving. It sounds unchristian. It sounds like we're trying to set science in all this new stuff in opposition to what Scripture says. The point we're making is that Scripture says what we say. Scripture says that there's a temporal punishment for sins. And sometimes you can't see it. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes you don't wouldn't know about it. You certainly can't see microchimerism. 
You can meet a girl who will lie about her body count and say she's a virgin or say, you know, one or two guys. And you're like, oh, well, that's not too bad. You can't see the consequences, but they're there. And so, like we talked about in the last couple episodes, the reason for sharing these things is not even so much for the guys who are listening to try to find a wife, although it's certainly for you. It's really in large part for you if you're going to find a wife and then have kids or the parents in, in the audience Make sure that your kids don't make any of these mistakes to begin with. And obviously that's impossible to do perfectly, but warn them. Tell your daughters, every man you sleep with becomes a part of you forever. And when someday you decide you want to settle down and give your husband children, they won't be his. Most girls are going to find that pretty horrifying. Some of the girls who are listening right now probably find that pretty horrifying. I can assure you the men who hear it, including myself, find it horrifying. That's messed up. Why? Because it's not how God designed things. God designed things where one man and one woman come together, and that's it. And the propagation within that family unit is a beautiful, wholesome thing. We've created the opposite with our disobedience, and we can't paper over the consequences of that. So we're going to have to do the best we can with this generation and pray that the next generation will heed the warning of our own to heed the warning of, hey, don't do all these stupid things that we've done because they're destructive. Not only does scripture say it, but if you're dumb enough to need science to tell you too, we got both now. We can absolutely prove that you're destroying your life by doing these things. So whatever reason is good enough for you not to do them, go with it. It should be God's obedience. And that's the point. The reason we talk about God says, and when we don't do, we get the consequences, is that that's what God says. If you just obey God and you don't know anything about science, you don't know anything about how any of this stuff works, it doesn't matter. The obedient person who serves God faithfully will simply never face these consequences. That is a blessing, and that is what we should be sharing with our children and future generations. What we're dealing with here, really, when we speak on the issue of temporal consequences and more so those who more or less reject temporal consequences, is Gnosticism. It's an ancient heresy that continually crops up in the church, and there are some who will say that Christians are paranoid about Gnosticism, at least certain Christians, and they see it everywhere. The problem is that it is everywhere, and that it constantly crops up. It is something that we have been fighting in the church for millennia, very actively, certainly for centuries, it comes in ebb and flow. Sometimes it is a very strong opponent of the church. Sometimes it's weaker. Today it's very strong. In our society, we have a very weird relationship to the body, to the flesh, because there's a very strong strain of transhumanism in modern thought. The idea that we can transcend this mortal coil and become something greater, whether it is through hallucinogens, some try that route, or body modification, which is to say perhaps cybernetics, or genetic engineering, whatever it is, there's this belief that we can transcend our mere flesh. And then on the other hand, there are those who totally deny the flesh and focus instead on the spirit, and think, well, the flesh doesn't matter. Ultimately, we're a spirit, and so what happens to the flesh is irrelevant. And that is part of 
some forms of ancient paganism, particularly the Greek paganism, to some degree the Romans. There's a bit of it in Hinduism and other places, certainly the you know, escape from samsara, things like that. But Gnosticism tells you to deny the reality of the flesh. And that is what underlies those who argue against temporal consequences for sin. What they're ultimately saying is that it's the spirit alone that matters, and the flesh isn't real. Because as soon as you are converted, as soon as you believe in Christ, as soon as you have faith, well, your, your spirit is now right with God, and so the flesh, well, it's, that's irrelevant. That's, that's just something you have for a time. And No, that's not what Scripture says. That's not what God made. You are body and soul. You are not soul riding around in body. You are not body that happens to have a soul. You are soul and body, body and soul. You are both of those as a human being. If you lose either of those, you're incomplete. And so the destruction of the flesh, of course, yes, is one thing you have. Christ says, don't be afraid of those who can kill your body. Rather, fear God alone who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But those are both real. That's why they're both mentioned there. Because both the body and the soul can be destroyed. And note what it says about hell. Body and soul. Those in hell are still body and soul. Because that is what it means to be a human being. And so when you deny the reality of temporal consequences, when you deny the reality of biology, whatever it happens to be, whether you deny that microchimerism happens, whether you deny that there are psychological consequences, in this case with a biological basis for women who are promiscuous, or you deny the reality of the sexes, you deny the reality of race, whatever it happens to be, whichever one of these biological truths you deny Ultimately, what you are doing is rejecting the reality of the flesh and telling God that he's wrong and no, I'm just a spirit and this flesh is just something you gave me for a time and it really doesn't matter. That is not what it means to be a human being. That is not what scripture teaches. That is not what Christians are permitted to hold or must hold. Christians must hold that the flesh is real both the flesh and the spirit. As I've mentioned before, when this topic has arisen, I am deliberately ignoring dualism versus trialism. I hold to the latter. That's not the discussion right now. You are body and soul. You have to affirm, as a Christian, the reality of both. And the flesh comes with very real consequences in time when you abuse the flesh. Or when you suffer something, because of course it's not always abuse. If you lose a limb, having faith in Christ does not regrow the limb, and you may have lost that due to no error on your part. Because sin does not have consequences just for the sinner. Sin has consequences for everyone around the sinner. Sin has consequences for creation. Creation fell because Adam sinned. Everything was subjected to futility because of Adam's sin. Your pets die because Adam sinned. Your pets die because you sin. Sin has very real consequences here in time. It will also have consequences in eternity if you do not believe in Christ. But the consequences in time are not 
removed simply because you have faith. They will be removed in eternity because you will be perfect, but they are not removed in time. And to deny that is to become a Gnostic, and a Christian cannot be a Gnostic because Gnosticism is a rejection of Scripture. It is a rejection of God's truth, and it is also a rejection of what it means to be human. It is a rejection of our nature and our essence, which of course is again a rejection of God, because rejecting the creation is rejecting the Creator. And so that is why we keep bringing up these sorts of topics, because there are Christians who stumble into these heresies because they listen to the world, and they don't pay attention, they don't assess, they don't look critically at what it is they're being told to believe, and so they stumble into heretical position. Now, maybe felicitous inconsistency will save them. Maybe they don't really ultimately, in their heart of hearts, believe these lies they profess. Maybe they trust in Christ alone. But that isn't the position that you want to take before the judgment throne. You want to hold to a true confession that doesn't have all these little lies attached to it. You don't want to have to rely on, well, someone lied to me and I was deceived, and that's not an excuse. Certainly it is better to have been deceived and believed something false than it is to willfully believe something false. But ignorance is not an excuse. The pagans who lived in deepest, darkest Africa millennia ago and never heard the gospel did not therefore have an excuse. Because God's law is written on the human heart, and there are very real consequences in time for the individual and generationally for that person's progeny when that man sins. So do not think that as a Christian, you can just say, well, I believe in Christ, and therefore all these other things are irrelevant. That is not how it works. Belief in Christ is the most important thing, yes. But all of the other truths flow from that. Because if you believe in God, if you believe in Christ, if you believe in this ultimate ground of reality and truth, then you must believe everything else about him. Not just that he gave his only begotten son to die for you, that he raised him again from the dead, that you are covered in his blood, that you are made whole in Christ, that you're forgiven. Because there are other truths about God. He reveals them in nature. He reveals them in scripture. And as Christians, we are beholden to believe in those things. Because to believe otherwise is to believe something false about God at best. And at worst, it is to accuse God of lying. And if you accuse God of lying, things don't get better from there. You will eventually apostatize. That is the end of that road. That is the broad path. And so all of these truths about God that we keep mentioning in these episodes, the reason they are important, as we have said so many times, they are not the core of the faith. That's not the point. The point is, if you believe a lie, if you believe any lie, because Satan's goal is to get you to believe any lie, he just wants an opening somewhere. It doesn't matter. He doesn't need you to open the front door. Just open the back window. He'll happily climb in. If you believe a lie, then you will eventually be faced with a choice. And that choice will be accepting you believed the lie, rejecting it, and believing the truth, which is what we are calling you to do, or 
you can refuse to accept that you believed a lie because it's uncomfortable to have to admit that. And you can double down. And you'll double down by believing another lie. And another lie. And another lie. And it never ends. Because as we've said many times, there's no floor. It can always get worse. And so yes, there are temporal consequences of sin. Yes, those stick with you. Yes, those will not go away in this life in many cases. But if you continue sinning, it will continue getting worse. And so stop. Turn from your sins, repent, and live the best life you can, even with the consequences of your past sin. If you don't accept that those consequences are real, you will forever be lying about the nature of reality, the nature of your own flesh, and the nature of God. That is not how you have a right relationship with God. You have a right relationship with God by accepting his truth, accepting the consequences of your past errors, and attempting to live the best life you can going forward with what God has given you in light of both God's gifts and the consequences of your actions. The Christian life is not a life of perfection. It is a life of repentance and, yes, attempting to do better. That is part of the Christian life. You do have good works because good works flow from a living faith. But it's not perfection. You won't be perfect in this life. Those temporal consequences do remain. As a Christian, affirm the truth and move forward. I want to close with a brief story that's recounting uh, Issues Etc. episode from 2019. As I was listening to it back when I used to still listen to Issues and thought that Todd was a decent guy, this particular episode that I'm going to recount briefly is where I initially had the realization of what we're describing today. The episode was with a woman who, at the age of 16 in 1973, got knocked up by her boyfriend. She hid it from her family, her Lutheran family, until she began showing. One day her mother realized she was pregnant, took her straight to the doctor. Uh, it was a family doctor who was also Lutheran. Don't remember if it was a Lutheran hospital, but pretty close. He was very gruff with her. He told the mother point blank, she can't keep it. Uh, they had 10 kids at home, and so he said, you're not going to be able to, you're going to be equipped to handle this child as well. She agreed. And so the 16-year-old girl, you know, didn't have any input. The decision was made to give the child up for adoption through Lutheran Child and Family Services or the precursor to it. She received no prenatal care. You know, she basically just went on with her life. She was not taken out of school. Uh, the law had been changed, so they weren't able to expel her either. So she attended school every day, pregnant as a teenager, unwed, uh, her boyfriend, skipped. He wanted nothing to do with it. So she was on her own. She went into labor at school. She came home, told her mom she was having contractions. When dad got home, he drove her to the hospital and she was basically on her own. And the way she described the delivery was that they wheeled her in. They put up a curtain at her, you know, her midsection. She wasn't able to see anything. She delivered the baby. She never even knew if it was a boy or a girl. She never got to hold it. Uh, never got to see it at all. She literally gave birth, and then it, the baby vanished. And then she went home. She recuperated, and she went back to school, and it was like it never happened. 
And part of the reason that she was telling this story was that she described how not long after she met a nice Lutheran boy and they got married and started a family and had a couple other kids. She never told anyone that she had had this this child at 16. She did learn a few days after the birth that it was a boy. So she knew it was a boy and that was it. And she had been told that I believe that they would go, the child would be adopted by a Lutheran family. And that was, that was the extent of it. But she never knew anything beyond that. Fast forward to, you know, recent memory. She got on 23andMe because she had Crohn's disease. One of her daughters had Crohn's disease, which is a heritable disease. And so she was curious. She found her son. And so it connected them. And, you know, she was shocked and terrified and didn't know what to do. But I don't know if excited was the right word. It was, you know, it was, it was like free fall. She didn't know what to feel. But she had described her life before that as being one of complete numbness. She described how when she gave birth to her children in her marriage, it didn't have the same type of joy that it would have had if not for her first child. And until she did the 23andMe, she never told her husband. She never told her family. Her and her parents were the only people who knew that she had ever been pregnant you know, in, in her circle of friends. And so after she met her son, who at this point was, I think, 45 years old, he was an attorney, he had five kids of his own. He was successful and happy and Lutheran. And so you know, it, was, it was a good reunion, but it was still very difficult for her. And you know, she talked to her, her husband and her kids, and everyone was happy about it. But one of the points of the episode, as she recounted all these various facts, was her describing her own suffering and emptiness from having given birth to a child and then having the child vanish, you know, through adoption. And she said that, you know, her, the child whom she gave up for adoption forgave her. He understood why it had happened. He said he you know, agreed with her it was the right thing to do under the circumstances. What struck me about hearing her describe the suffering and the numbness and the, the silent trauma of those events was that there was literally only one difference between her second pregnancy and her first. It was the same act of conception. It was the same gestational process. It was the same type of birth. The only difference was the moral circumstances surrounding with whom she had had sex. In the first case, it was a boyfriend in high school. That was wrong. That was disordered. That was not to whom she had been given. She gave herself away to someone inappropriately, sinfully. The result of that coupling was that her entire life has been scarred. And that was one of the things that she talked about. She knew he, she was forgiven. Everyone in her family and her life forgave her. No one holds her morally culpable. And yet, to this day, even after having been reunited with him and all the rest, her entire life has been defined by the numbness of a pregnancy outside of marriage, to the point that it even had a small detriment on her bonding with her subsequent children. And what I realized as I was listening to that was how profound that is, that if her first child had been with her husband, it would have been only joy. It would have been 100% joy. It was the single act of disobedience of having sex outside of marriage and the resulting pregnancy that set a chain of events in motion that were the temporal consequences of her sin. She's forgiven. She's confessed. 
I'm not holding in her against her morally. I'm not sitting in judgment. That's not the point. The point is that the suffering that she endured and continues to endure, she still has psychological problems from it. I would imagine this is a few years ago. She's probably doing better now that she's reconciled with her her adopted son. But the fact remains that she lost out on most of her life as being the sort of life it would have been by that one single act. And that's the point of this whole episode. All it takes is one deviation from God's commandments to potentially wreck your entire life. Now, this is sort of basic parental advice for anyone. You make one bad choice, it can ruin your life. The reason that we're discussing it, this is even true among Christians. It's even true with Jesus Christ and the forgiveness at the cross. Even when you sin and you are forgiven and you confess it, the sin may still harm you for the rest of your life. And the only way to fix that is never to do it. There is no undo button. There's no undo for her having slept with her boyfriend when she was 16. And she paid for the rest of her life for having done that, knowing that she was forgiven. And I think that's one of the important parts of this is that it's not psychologizing guilt and loss and separation anxiety and all these psychological terms we throw around. She was injured by her sin. What should have been the most joyous day of her life became the worst. And the worst day of her life became the defining moment of her life. Even though she went on to have a good and happy life, it wasn't as good and happy as if she had not done that. And so I would ask everyone who's listening to remember that that is the point of this. It is not about sitting in judgment retroactively and say, well, you did this and you did that, and we need to we need to do more to you. The point is that the only way to prevent these temporal consequences for our sin is not to do them in the first place. And the best bet, if you're not going to simply believe God and obey him, there's backup. If you believe that God is active in this world, believe that there are temporal consequences for your sin. And even if you don't want to obey God for the sake of being a faithful creature, perhaps if the if the curb there is you will only obey him because you don't want the consequences, that's fine. You're still obeying God. In the future, God will hopefully strengthen and preserve your faith to the point that just obeying him for its own sake will be enough. But the only way to prevent any of this harm, any of this damage, is not to do the sin in the first place. And we're in a generation that is so pervasively affected by this and so many other sins that people want to be defensive about their own past actions. Christians need to get past that. And they need to get past it in part by not relying on the cross as a crutch. That's not what it's there for. We're comforted that we're forgiven, but we still need to be reminded that there's punishment for evil in this life. God built it that way. God did both of those things. And the cross is the most important thing, but no less important in terms of shaping our lives can be God's will is revealed to us in Scripture. And in some cases, things that are contrary to nature, it's revealed in nature itself. God has organized everything so that we have to go out of our way to make things worse. And one of the things we're trying to emphasize is believe God, obey him, and you won't make things worse. To the contrary, if you do disobey God, if you do sin either willfully or accidentally and fall into these traps and these errors, you may well receive the due punishment in your flesh that will never go away. 
and civilizationally, and as a church, both the left hand and the right hand of Christ, we must acknowledge that there's punishment for sin. God paid for everything on the cross. The temporal punishments are only paid by those who have committed the sins, and in some cases, their family, and their friends, and their neighborhoods, and their communities, and in some cases, their very civilizations. So this is a matter that affects all of us. This is not about secret sins, and it's not about retribution. It's about making sure that we teach our children and we shape those who still have a chance not to go down these paths to tell them how bad it will get. And sometimes how bad it will get is the best incentive to obey God. And later on, you realize what a blessing it is from God to have these things revealed and to have people in a senior position to warn you, don't go there. You will only make make things worse for yourself in a way that will never go away until the resurrection. So if you listen with kids or if you have kids or if you're going to have kids, talk to them about this. This generation is a mess. The next generation doesn't have to be. That's with you. That's with the parents. If you have made these mistakes, if your kids are on the path of making these mistakes, think about these consequences for the rest of their lives. Think about the ways that they, you can help them avoid suffering and create an environment in your home and in your church and your community where we have these curbs around these behaviors so that they just don't happen. It used to be that profligate sexual behavior was thoroughly frowned upon. It was scorned. It was despised by society. We need to bring that back because when that's being maintained at the societal level, you don't need people to even believe in God. They just need to know that it's going to hurt if they disobey God, whether or not they believe in him or not. Just believing that if I cross the line with these things, I'm going to pay for it socially, that will keep people from sinning, from doing evil. That benefits everyone, most of all them. Again, to rein in someone's sinful nature through a curb that says if you act like a slut, you're going to be scorned and shamed publicly, and you're going to have a terrible reputation, that should come back. And the fact that that went away was a necessary precursor for everything else. So this is not about finger-pointing or recrimination. It's about preventing the evil from occurring in the first place. Because only by preventing the evil from occurring can we avoid the temporal consequences. And let's not have more reasons to nail Christ to the cross. As faithful Christians, that should be our chief concern. But as Christians living in this world, all of these things are equal concerns. We have to be faithful to God. We have to obey him. Because what choice do we have? He's told us these things for our benefit. And the more we obey, the better things are. What's the downside? God has given us all these blessings. Let's receive them with thanksgiving and share them with others.